I invite you this morning to turn in your copy of the scripture to the book of 2 Samuel. We are working our way through the book and have been in chapters 10 through 12 of 2 Samuel. Chapters that record for us a downward spiral in David's life where David succumbs to sin. And one of the important things to note in this section is that David doesn't fall into sin because he sees a woman bathing as recorded for us in chapter 11. Rather, David's succumbing to sin started earlier. And we saw hints of this in chapter 10 because David grew in self-dependence and less in God-dependence. And we noted that David, as recorded for us, stops praying. He stops asking for the Lord's guidance and direction in his life. And then instead of carrying out duties that he should be doing, he just starts sending people. You see, he's enjoying peace. He is enjoying victory. Everything is going good. And everything is going not good. Because David has stopped depending on the Lord. He's grown to be self-dependent and not God-dependent. Chapter 11 records for us him seeing this beautiful woman. And instead of turning away, he sought out more information about her, sent for her, and ended up committing adultery with her, another man's wife. Instead of confessing his sin, he tried to cover it. Instead of calling sin, sin, he downplayed it. Treating it as, well, it's not that big of a deal. At least nine months goes by and brought us to what's recorded in chapter 12. This time, instead of David doing the sending, the Lord sent someone a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan the prophet tells David a story about injustice. And David demonstrating the sin in his own heart with a judgmental attitude called for justice. And then Nathan the prophet says to David, you're the man. You are the one about whom this story is told. And in chapter 12, verse 13, David says, I've sinned. And out of the genuineness of his heart, he actually comes to a point where he calls sin, sin. He agrees with God. And God says, you're forgiven. Now, one of the things the Lord outlines for him through the prophet Nathan, and one of the things that we're going to see through the remainder of this book, is that while the Lord 
is always willing to forgive his people for the guilt of their sin. There's always consequence of sin. David, in a parallel passage, Psalm 51, that describes the same period in his life, has been characterized by lack of joy, lack of peace, spiritual powerlessness, spiritual impotency. He's empty. There's always consequence to sin. And yet today, in the latter part of chapter 12, we come to some good news. You see, the Bible is just not a collection of stories. It's an account of real people living real life. And justice is true for David, is true for you, and is true for me. We can all look back in our lives and say, I willfully sin, just like David did. Maybe a different kind of sin, but we willfully sin. And we also can all identify with what that feels like when we know when things aren't right with God. Because we're hanging on to our sin and we're not willing to call it sin. We all know that emptiness, that spiritual dryness, that lack of peace and joy in our lives. But when David confesses his sin, while he still will suffer sin's consequence, we see in this section that we're going to look at today that God just showers him with wave upon wave of more grace. And that's what's encouraging for us because we're going to see that when we are not faithful to the Lord, he's always faithful to us. When we are faithless, he's faithful. And regardless of how we live out our life, he is unchangeable in his character and his attributes. He always forgives his people when they confess their sin. And while there will be consequence of sin, sometimes severely affecting those around us, his grace is always there for us. I'm going to read this account. You can follow along in your copy of the scripture. I'll be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 15 down through the end of the chapter. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, 
he's dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing you've done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, well, the child was still alive. I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son And he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet. And he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and captured the royal city. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I fought against Rabbah. I've even captured the city of waters. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it, or I will capture the city myself, and it will be named after me. So David gathered all the people and went to Rabbah and fought against it and captured it. Then he took the crown of their king from his head, and its weight was a talent of gold, and it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. He also brought out the people who were in it and set them under saws, sharp iron instruments, and iron axes, and made them pass through the brick kiln. And thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Second Samuel chapters 10, 11, and 12. Self-dependence instead of God-dependence. Downward spiral into sin. Confrontation of sin. Repentance of sin. Confession of sin. And now today as we come to this latter section, we see consequence of sin, but then grace upon grace. I have a friend who early in his marriage was not guarding what he saw. He was looking at images that he should not see and thought he was getting away with it. It's prevalent. And he kept doing it and doing it and kept getting sucked deeper and deeper until he realized one day that he had no joy in his life. He was miserable. And his sin already had dire consequence in the fact that when he saw his wife, he did not find her attractive anymore. And he went to the Lord and finally confessed his sin and experienced forgiveness. But there was still consequence. He confessed to his wife and deeply hurt her. 
But that started the beginning of a rebuilding in a relationship and the Lord just started the show wave of grace after grace after grace and started to renew his mind and started to bring oneness to them again as husband and wife. You see, God always forgives when his people come to him and out of the genuineness of our hearts say, I've sinned. He always forgives. He always forgives the guilt of sin, but there's always consequence to sin. And just as David, my friend, experienced that sense of emptiness, powerlessness, no joy. But in the depths of his pain came the grace of the Lord. And that's what we're going to see in a passage that's actually encouraging to us Because as we look in our own hearts and see our own sin and see how we so often willfully sin against the Lord, experience the same spiritual emptiness because we don't confess it, come to the Lord and finally call sin, sin. There's hope. We not only experience the grace of forgiveness, but the Lord continues to shower wave after wave of grace upon us, reminding us of the depths of his love for us, the faithfulness that he has. And he is a God who can bring restoration. As we come to the section today, we find in verse 15, Nathan the prophet goes home. He delivered his message to David. He told David he was the one that was sinning. David confesses his sin. Nathan tells him the words of the Lord. There's going to be consequence. The sword is not going to depart from your house. One who's close to you will actually sin with your own harem. And it tells us in verse 14 of chapter 12, However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And there are two Hebrew words there laid next to each other that says this is a done deal. It's going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen. And we come to the very next verse and it says, Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. Now, this verse is very clear. In this particular situation, in David's particular life, God chooses to use the death of this son that was born to David in his sin with Bathsheba as a consequence of his sin. Now this is particular to this situation. We do not come to a theology of how God deals with little ones who pass away from this verse. But in David's life, this is how God chooses to work. David's response, I'm going to seek the Lord. Remember, he's restored in his relationship with God. 
And so he commits himself to pray. He starts to fast. He won't even get up from the ground. He is just pouring his heart out in prayer. The elders of Israel come by and say, Hey, you've got to eat. You're going to get ill. You've got to get strength. He refuses. He just continues to pour out his heart in prayer. And then it tells us in verse 18, On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants don't even know how to tell him. They said if he's acted the way he has while the child's still alive, what's going to happen when he finds out the child has passed away? He's going to hurt himself. But David senses the the talk going on amongst his servants. He senses what has happened, and so he just asks them forthrightly, is the child dead? And in verse 19 they say, he is dead. What happens next surprises them all. David gets up, he washes, he anoints himself with oil, changes his clothes, and it says he goes to the house of the Lord and worships. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Verse 20 is very important. It says that he went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Normally in your Old Testament, when it talks about the house of the Lord, it's either talking about the tabernacle, that movable house of worship that the Lord instructed Israel to construct for them to worship him during their sojournings, or it talks about the permanent structure that... Solomon is going to build. But here, most likely, it's talking about that temporary tent that David ordered to be erected in Jerusalem as a temporary home for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to Jerusalem. And remember, for an Israelite, and they're thinking where the Ark of the Covenant is, the Lord is. Remember, it's just a wooden box with a gold cover on it with gold uh, carvings of... Uh, of cherubim above it. And God told Israel that he would reside above the Ark of the Covenant so that when the Ark was in their presence, God was in their presence. And even though God is spirit and infinitely uh, present everywhere, in some sense he made himself present in the midst of his people. So David's first inclination is to go be with God. And it's very important for us to say that he went and worshipped, then he ate. You see, his hunger for God was greater than his hunger for food. He had been separated from his walk with the Lord for at least nine months. He knew how empty and dry and powerless, just gross his life had been. And now that he's restored and he's experienced forgiveness, after pouring out his heart to the Lord, his first instinct is to go and be with him. The second thing we see in verse 20 is that David is not bitter. He understands that there's always consequence to sin. In this situation, it's severe. But instead of being angry at God for the loss of this child, what does he do? He goes and bows himself before the Lord and worships him. 
His servants don't understand. And in verses 21 through 23, they ask for an explanation. Uh, when he was alive, you were pouring out your heart, you were fasting, and then he does pass away, and instead of grieving, you're, you get up and clean up and go worship. What's up? And David said, well, I'd hoped the Lord would be gracious to me by allowing the child to live, but that's not what he chose to do. And I can't bring him back. Someday when I die, I'll go to him. You see, David's first instinct was to go be with the Lord. Verses 24 and 25 are so encouraging. Because in them we find the comfort that David had experienced from a renewed, restored relationship with the Lord is passed on to his wife. And notice just even the grace in the text. Up in verse 15 it says, The Lord struck the child that was born to Uriah's widow. Now in verse 24 it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. And a new baby is born. They named him Solomon. And the Lord wants to shower grace upon David so much that he sends a tool of grace, a messenger of grace. He sends Nathan back and says, Nathan, I have a message that I want you to give to David. I want you to tell David that I love this little baby. And the Lord has a name for him. While David and Bathsheba named him Solomon, the Lord's name for him is Jedediah, loved of the Lord. Some of us in the room may be cognizant of this, but this week will be June 13th. June 13th is the, is the anniversary of our flood here in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, that destroyed a large section of our city, including about, I think it was 13 homes of our own church family. That particular morning of June 13th, our pastoral staff and wives were coming back from a pastor's retreat in Chicago. And as we came over the Interstate 380 bridge past downtown, we knew that things were bad. In fact, they shut the bridge down about an hour after we crossed over it. Those of us who live here know the rest of the story. The 500-year flood took out downtown and huge tracts of our homes. And while that was devastating for our city, one of the most eerie things to me was when they reopened the I-380 bridge and driving over that bridge at night. When my wife and I lived in Dallas, Texas, whenever we would come home from a trip and see the lights of downtown, it just kind of like, we're home. When I lived in North Dakota, when I saw the Pizza Hut and the uh, gas station lights on, I, we're home. When we come to Cedar Rapids and you come up the interstate, it's black. It's totally dark. There's no power at all. And it just left this heaviness, this sadness, this, this sense of 
hopelessness. There's no power. It's just eerie. I didn't like it. I had a very difficult time even wanting to see it. That that sense of just utter, helpless, powerless devastation. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 tells us as Christians not to grieve the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 assures us that every Christian has the Spirit of God living in us. That means that at the moment I put my trust in the person of Jesus Christ, that I finally realize I cannot be a good enough person to earn merit with God. And God just can't forget about my sin, but in the depths of his love sent his one and only son to earth who lived a sinless life and then died on a cross as payment for my sin, satisfying the righteous demands of a holy God. And at the moment that I realized that Jesus Christ was my payment and I put my dependence on him, I put my trust on him, I put my faith in him, that he is the only way I can have a right relationship with God because he paid for my sin. At that moment, when I put my trust in him, Romans chapter 8 verse 9 affirms to us that the Spirit of God comes in and takes up residence in us, and he is our seal, according to Ephesians 1. When I was in college, I worked on the truck docks at a big warehouse in Omaha, Nebraska, and one of my jobs was to unload semis. And when that semi would come in, the first thing we would do is get the bill of lading, and there would be a number on it. I'd go to the back of that semi, there would be a little metal seal on that semi, and I'd have to make sure that that number on that seal matched the paperwork, because what it meant, if that seal was unbroken. It meant that that shipment got to us securely. That's what the Holy Spirit is. He is our seal. He guarantees our relationship with God the Father. The Spirit of God is our guarantee that one day we will be with him forever and ever. Every Christian has the Spirit of God. And the Spirit's desire is to fill us and control us and actually replicate the life of Christ through us so that when people see you, they see Christ in you. What happens when we sin is we, in a sense, kink up the Spirit's ability to replicate Christ's life through us. And when we sin and we don't confess it, It's like sitting at the dinner table with our family and everybody is not speaking with each other. It's just gross. It's like seeing a powerless city. It's devastated. There's no joy. There's no peace in our lives. We're just empty. We are dry. That's what David was experiencing until he finally called sin, sin. And he experienced forgiveness. There's a verse, two verses in the Old Testament that are kind of forming undergird a bedrock for Old Testament understanding. 
in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. They form uh, a bedrock understanding of who God is. And you remember in Exodus 34, we have the record of Moses going back up to Mount Sinai for the Lord to give him the law again. The first time, while Moses was on the mount, the people of Israel said, I don't think he's coming back. We need a God. We better make a God. And so they collected all the jewelry. They formed a golden a, an image and started to worship it. God said, you better get back down there. Moses goes back down. When he sees what the people are doing, he throws the tablets. They're broken. So now in Exodus chapter 34, he's back with the Lord again. And the Lord is going to give him the law a second time. And we find as the Lord passes in front of Moses, he says this about himself. Verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. You see, God here gives Israel a bedrock statement about who he is. He is a God of grace. Loyal love. Our important Hebrew word, chesed. And here, God demonstrates not only the grace of forgiveness to David, but grace upon grace. You see, David's sin... Neither David's sin nor that little infant's death changed who God is. God is still a God of gracious compassion. Regardless of David's sin or the consequence of David's sin in the loss of this little one did not change who God is. He's still a God of love. He's still a God of grace. He's still a God of compassion. And David recognizes it. He doesn't hold bitterness toward God because of the consequence of his sin. And then God just showers grace on him. No longer is Bathsheba the widow of Uriah. Now she's told to be David's wife. A baby is born. And God sends a message of grace saying, I love this baby. Calling him loved of the Lord. Well, as we come to the end of the section in verses 26 through 31, we see even another example of God's faithfulness to David. It takes us all the way back to chapter 11, verse 1. This account of David and Bathsheba has been a, a, a little side discussion in the main movement of the passage. And we remember back in chapter 11, 1, that David sent his general Joab to go surround the uh, capital city of the Ammonites, the city which is now is Amman, Jordan, in modern-day Amman, Jordan. 
And Joab obeyed, and as we come now to chapter 11, verse 26 through 31, we see that God once again demonstrates his faithfulness to his people even after they sinned. Joab sends word back to David and says, this victory's about sure. I've cut off the water supply. I've got them surrounded. You better come soon and bring some men or else I'm going to capture the city. I'm going to name it after me. So David gets some guys together. They go and David finds victory once again. It tells us in verse 29, David gathered all the people, went to Rabbah, fought against it, and captured it. He took all the spoils of war, all the precious metals, took them back to Jerusalem, and then he took the captives, and in verse 31, it tells us that he puts them to forced labor. They have to start using saws and sharp iron instruments and iron axes and actually work in a brick factory serving David, these enemies of the Lord. Now, why is this account here? I think it's because our human author once again wants to stress to us that even after David's sin, God's still faithful to him. Briefly turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. And this little hymn about Jesus Christ in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. We read this. I'll start reading in verse 11. It's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. You see what Paul is saying there is that at the moment I put my trust in Jesus, I become part of the body of Christ. And Jesus Christ is not going to be faithless toward his own body. Even when I'm faithless, he's faithful. Even when I sin, at the moment I put my, conf- I confess my sin, my, my relationship is restored once again i still can enjoy my relationship with god and there still will be consequence but also grace upon grace several years ago my wife and i were at a large conference in wichita kansas for pastors and church leaders across the u.s in one particular noontime, uh, Barbara was going to go back to our motel room and rest for a little bit. These conferences are not easy. And I was hungry, so I went to a little tiny Chinese restaurant in downtown Wichita. And it was great. It was just a husband and wife, just a tiny little place. And I usually judge if a place is good or not by their hot and sour soup. And theirs was great. I was so impressed. I went to the owner and I said, how late are you open today? And I found out they're open just for lunch. And I said, oh, shoot, I wanted to bring my wife and some friends back. And he said, well, what time did you want to do it? And I said, oh, we're about 530. He says, well, I will open up just for you. And so he did. I, I, I grabbed five other couples. And so the 12 of us 
went to this little place. I was a little nervous because I invited all these people along, but sure enough, he was there. We had the entire restaurant to ourselves. He even had the clothes sign still up. And we ordered. But then what took place was just amazing. Food started coming out of the kitchen in waves for all of us that none of us had ordered. And he said, well, I just wanted you to try this. And this is just my little treat. And it just kept coming and coming and coming, just wave after wave after wave. And it was just like, we didn't deserve this. We didn't pay for this. And he said, I just wanted to do this for you. And you know what? That's what God does for you and for me. Even when we are faithless, once we experience that joy of having just the enjoyment of not having a kinked up relationship with the Spirit of God and start experiencing that grace of forgiveness and start being attuned to Him again, then we can just start recognizing wave after wave of His grace. You know, an important takeaway from chapters 10 through 12 is to remind ourselves, how did David end up in this situation in the first place? He ended up here when things were good. He ended up here when he started to be more self-dependent than God-dependent. And we saw little clues of that. He stopped praying. He stopped asking for the Lord to help him. And last week we saw he became very judgmental of others. Instead of recognizing the own sin in his life, he was pointing out the sin in others. It's a good encouragement to us. When life's going great, we should say, I've got to be careful here. I've got to stay dependent on the Lord. When we find that we're not praying, we say, I've got to tell the Lord how much I need him on a moment-by-moment basis. When we find ourselves being critical of other brothers or sisters in Christ instead of being cognizant of our own sin, it's time for us to come to him in prayer and say, Father, please show me my own sin because I don't want to end up in a downward spiral. And then we experience the fact that he's always faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess it. And while there's always consequence... There's always grace. Father, we thank you for this, these chapters that they include real life accounts of real people and the encouragement that we find in them, the reminder that we find in them that we've got to stay dependent on you. We've got to keep short accounts. We can't allow sin to go unconfessed in our lives because all it leads to is destruction and hopelessness, lack of peace and joy. But with you, you're always faithful. There's always forgiveness available to us and grace upon grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.